Hey, it's Daryl. As we get started, I wanted to let you know about a new course that I just released last month, and it is called Helping Others Grow. And if you are interested, uh, I want to give you a special coupon for podcast listeners, and the code is PODCAST21, PODCAST21, and that will get you $10 off the course Helping Others Grow. If you're interested, go to gospelforlife.com, and you can find out more information there. Okay, that's it. Let's get started. Welcome to the Gospel for Life podcast. We help churches make disciples. And now, here's your host, Daryl Dash. Most Christians would agree that the Bible is important, but statistics show that many Christians aren't reading the Bible. And when we do read the Bible, we often suffer with misconceptions and half-truths that lead us to very strange views of the Bible. We can even lose confidence in the Bible because we're not prepared to understand it on its own terms. Dr. Michael Bird wants to help. He's written a book called Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew About the Bible. And he covers topics like how the Bible was put together, what inspiration means, how the Bible is true, why literal interpretation is not always the best interpretation, and more. And it's not only an informative book, but it's a fun one with Dr. Bird's well-known sense of humor. Dr. Bird is a lecturer in theology at Ridley College in Melbourne, and he's also a visiting research professor at Houston Baptist University. He's an Anglican priest, married to Naomi, and has four children. And in his leisure time, I'm not sure he has much of it, but he, in his leisure time, he enjoys jogging, musical theater, red wine, and reading. Now, I didn't ask you, should I be calling you Dr. Bird or Michael throughout the podcast? I just call me Mike. Mike, anything, it, but, anything but Mick. <laughs> All right, that sounds good. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Daryl. What made you want to write a book about what we should know about the Bible? Well, it's kind of like having to deal with the same questions over and over. Um, Seeing people complain about the same things, mischaracterize the same things. Having some sort of, you know, non-Christians or skeptics keep keep pushing the same kind of weird conspiracy theories on social media. I thought, well, it'd be good to, to nut out some of these as a bit of, you know, preventive pastoral care to help Christians getting confused or misguided or dumbstruck by, by, by some of the more difficult questions that they can come up with on their own about the Bible. And if, and if people know, you know, roughly these seven things, they're more, they're, they're more likely to have greater confidence in the Bible and to be less flustered when they come across something that sounds a little bit weird or they're not too sure how to explain it. So it's strange because we we claim to be people of the book and some of the things you cover in the book should be fairly elementary and yet a lot of Christians just don't understand them. You know, for instance, how the Bible was put together, you begin there. And a lot of Christians, maybe they, they read a, a novel, the Da Vinci Code or something, and, and they really don't know how to answer it. And yet that should be fairly accessible information for every believer. So why do you think that we aren't prepared to, to know the very basic facts of the Bible? I think it's because we, we take, we, people can often regard the bible as a kind of like like a, a calendar of memorable quotes 
like, you know, you've got like a little calendar and every day there's a, there's a famous quote from, you know, Albert Einstein or, or Madame Curie or Isaac Newton or Iggy Pop or whoever it is you're into. We just think it's like just a, a little sort of random tidbits of inspirational. We can, we can treat the Bible like that. And we don't understand that this was written as instruction, as a type of wisdom. Uh, as a type of uh, narrative or even a constitution for for people over various centuries and it was very meaningful in their context and then these texts take on a whole life of their own and the way they're received and interpreted in subsequent communities so uh, people have no, have no grasp of the historical centeredness and the historical effects of the text that they're reading and yeah, it just gets treated as a kind of you might call it like hallmark wisdom that you could just as well find on a, on a greeting card or a birthday card of some form. Early on, I think in the preface, you talk about the fact that if pastors taught the seven things that you cover in the book, if they preached about them, if if Sunday school classes and small groups taught them, we probably wouldn't have some of the problems in the in the church to do with the Bible today. And the thing that confuses me is pastors go to seminary, most of them anyway, they've they've studied some of these topics, and yet I, I think we're not doing a great job teaching them. So why do you think that is? Because probably the, the problem does begin in the pulpit, at least to a certain extent. Yeah, well, it depends. It depends on the pastor, depends on the church, depends on the seminary. And it, it depends on your individual context. You know, there are certain contexts, particularly in North America, where the burning issue is, do you believe in inerrancy or infallibility? You know, as if that's the issue that divides the good guys from the bad guys. And if you're interpreting the Bible in light of that kind of in-house division, then you're going to line up all the ducks to make sure you you align with one particular team or another. In other words, uh, a lot of sort of um, in-house tribal debates will affect the way people address these questions. So that that's that's one factor I think that is going on. In another sense, people are a little bit scared of of the history because, like I said, they want to treat the Bible either as devotional wisdom or purely as a as a timeless resource of dogma. And they're a little bit reluctant, a little bit reluctant to make it all historically centered because that means you actually need to know some history, and that is just like you know way too hard. And I think the other thing is we often just want to use the Bible as a way to prop up our own church culture, you know, our own our own congregation's way of doing business. We just see the the Bible as a source book for that, and including things like you know God speaking to us, God addressing us with a, a message. But we then then find sort of you know some tricks or easy cop outs to avoid wrestling with some of the more difficult stuff, like you know what do you do with the the war text in the Old Testament, you know about the way they fought, you know, ancient Near Eastern warfare. I mean, what do you do with that? Or, or we get into the cultural debates about, you know, creation or politics and healthcare. And the idea is to, to domesticate the Bible to whatever sort of political tribe you're part of. And, that, and you can, well, that's whether you're conservative or progressive on those issues, that can happen. So I think that's some of the issues, where, what you've got to deal with. And you can deal with them in, in a number of ways. I mean, one thing I, I teach at Ridley College is you've got to be, be aware of your own social, cultural, and philosophical location. You know, if you're a, a you know, white person growing up in Canada or a black woman living in Uganda, 
I mean, you're going to have a different culture around you, and that is going to shape the way you you understand and look at the Bible. So you've got to have a little bit of self-consciousness. You've also got to be aware of those who read the Bible before you, looking at the great tradition of the church. You've also got to have a certain degree of humility and understand there's different ways of viewing things. And the way you've done it in you and, and your church's Bible study for the last 60 odd years, maybe, just maybe, the post-World War II consumerist, hyper-individualistic religious culture that you live in is not normal or hasn't been around everywhere in the world. And, you, and in, in fact, you're the, you're the person who's got the odd view because you're somewhat newbie on the scene. Yeah, it's it's a very different mindset. We we tend to have a lot of hubris when we approach scripture and taking that humble mindset probably goes a long way. Mike, I talked to a pastor one time. Uh, actually, I think this was a professor, but it, it resembles a conversation I've had with a pastor. And he was approaching retirement and he said, there's all kinds of things as I read scripture that I'm convinced uh, about and yet it's not safe in my ministry to talk about them and i think he was talking about scripture seems to when you read it on its own terms it doesn't always adhere to the lines that we've drawn for it to to stay within and and so he said you know when i'm retired i can kind of follow those lines and it struck me as being a very sad commentary on how we handle scripture that that we don't let it speak on its own terms and i understand because we we do have theology around what scripture is and how it works so i understand how we got there i thought your book did a good job of helping us to understand scripture on its own terms although on the other hand i think some people are going to push back because it violates maybe a shibboleth or, or a denominational conviction around say infallibility or inerrancy and that kind of thing so Talk to me about that. For somebody who's afraid of of letting scripture, you know, reading scripture and allowing it to inform us about how to read scripture, how do we push past that fear and let it speak for itself? Yeah, well, I mean, that can depend on your context. And if you're dealing with things like job security, I mean, look, on, on the one hand, if you belong to an institution that has a statement of faith, and uh, if you can't uphold that statement of faith, then maybe that institution is not the place where you need to be. So, I mean, there's, there's, there's that issue like that you have to deal with. But on the general issue of wrestling with some of the, the difficult or the, uh, the hard parts of the Bible, look, I mean, it's... it's Honesty is always the best policy. And look, there, there are some parts of the Bible that bother me. There's some parts of the Bible I'm not sure how line up with that part. You know, you know, you look at the Sermon on the Mount and you know, love your enemies, but then look at some some things in the Old Testament. How do you sort those things out? But I mean, the good thing, don't that is not a new question. People have been wrestling with that for a long time, keeping the faith persevering and you, know, you don't have to shout people down or be uh, condemning others because they they raise those sorts of questions having a little having a little bit of occasional skepticism and the odd bit of doubt is actually the sign of, of an inquiring faith a faith that wants to grow and engage and wrestle with god uh, it's not a sign of weakness and it's certainly not not an attack either and we've got to be open to so those sorts of questions of inquiring minds because those are the both they're also the best chances uh, to grow and to be edified and to come to a far more mature faith that's that's able to deal with the the slings and arrows of of human existence as, as you read the bible and what but what we've got to do is say that the, the bible is not just a kind of like a rubik's cube to be solved with some of the 
historical, theological, and ethical challenges it throws up for us, we also need to see it as a resource. It is something that contributes to to, to the you know, to the to the life of, of of Christians, and even it helps enhance the human condition. The Bible is a book of hope. It's a book of God's love for the world. It's a book that tells us it's better to suffer violence than to do violence. That victims should be protected. That all human beings are in the image of God. And the Bible, irrespective of what people may think about it, pro and con, has had the biggest effect on Western civilization, and it's the basis to be perfectly frank, for pretty much everything good in Western civilization, whether it's our view of human rights, our view of freedom, respecting uh, the rights of people, you know, the equality of, of women, those sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, they're all sort of rooted in a, in a, in a Christian uh, in interpretation of these sacred texts. Uh, so we can, we can focus on that stuff as well, not just the sort of, you know, the, 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 the difficult texts or the texts of terror that's sometimes called when you read the Bible. The Bible has had a positive impact. I think you got to tell both sides of the story there. Your second last chapter covers what the Bible is meant to do, and it's such an encouraging chapter. I think if if anybody's struggling in their Bible reading, that would be a good chapter not only to inform but to encourage you on why it's worthwhile. I really appreciated that chapter. Well, you talk about a lot in the book. You talk about how the Bible's put together, and you talk about what inspiration means. You talk about what it means to say that the Bible is true, and even our understandings of, you know, the kind of literature that it is. You talk about how history helps us understand Scripture, why the literal interpretation isn't always the best interpretation. As I mentioned, you talk about the goal of Bible reading and how to keep Jesus at the center of the Bible. The book's been out for not that long now. Have you found that any of these topics have especially resonated with people since the book came out? Or are there any topics that have especially rankled maybe people and, and got them worked up? Which, which topics do you sense really are challenging people? Probably the one that raises the most eyebrows is the one about, you know, you, you need to take the Bible seriously, not necessarily. That that does raise a few a few eyebrows because people often get say, told that, you know, a literal hermeneutic is like the, the best one, the only one, the exclusive one. And, yeah, I mean, I've argued there are places where you need to read the Bible very literally. Like, you know, when it says Jesus and his disciples came to Capernaum, it means Jesus and some other dudes he was traveling with came to a town called Caponium and nothing sort of allegorical, symbolic about that. But then you read other parts of the Bible, whether it's the book of Revelation, the Song of Songs, certain parts of Genesis. These these cannot be sustained on a, a, a literal interpretation. I mean, Paul at one point in Galatians says these things may be taken out allegorically. In the Revelation of, of John, we're told certain things need to be understood figuratively. So you know, th- these are ways that the Bible itself um, helps us to interpret to interpret the Bible. Now, that's not to create a kind of really license that people can just you know, read the Bible in whatever the way they want. I believe there are certain constraints about how we read the Bible, constraints by the shape of the canon itself, our, our sort of uh, Christological centeredness of the Bible, things like historical context as well, and certain, certain ethical constraints that lead us to a responsible reading of the Bible. So, you know, I mean, that's, that's probably the chapter where people, I think, get the most out of the book because, you know, you, you point out you, that there is a certain degree of freedom and even artistic license. As long as you've got the sort of, you know, canonical seatbelt, you're being shaped by the wider form 
function and story of the entire Bible. You're, you're somewhat free to be able to, to delve in and try to make all sorts of connections within the Bible, behind the Bible, even with your own experience in front of the Bible. You really bring out, I think later in the book, that we don't tend to interpret Scripture the way that the apostles interpret Scripture. Why do you think that is? And I, I think I kind of know because it's so foreign to us, but yeah, how do help us walk through that? How do we learn from the apostles how to interpret Scripture? Oh, yeah, I mean, one of the questions I ask students is, should we interpret the Old Testament the way the apostles did? And many students are like, good grief, no. I mean, that's just weird. But, you know, they're allowed to be weird because they're apostles. They've just got like a, you know, they've got like a, a, a hermeneutical immunity card. They can do what they like. And I say, well, no, actually, the way they interpret the Bible should be a model for us. Um, and, you know, because even, even the very conservative students who sort of mired somewhere between a very literal reading strategy and a modernist one, that's all about the histor- historical critical sense of just looking at the grammar and the history and the meaning of Greek and Hebrew words. And even that is something of a constraint. If you read the apostles and the later church fathers, they, they read, particularly the Old Testament, with a great deal of creative energy. And they believe that the whole canon points to Christ, it's unified in Christ, and therefore they have no misapprehensions about finding types, patterns, and prophecies of Christ in the Old Testament, or the way they make um, connections between between the Old Testament, between the, the old, the, between the Gospels and, say, the book of Hebrews or something like that. There's a, there's a, there's a great deal of hermeneutical lice, or well, maybe not hermeneutical, that might not be the best word, but there's, there's a great way of, like, of searching and questing after new types of coherences you can find when, when you read the Bible, particularly in light of your worshiping experience okay if i've experienced god in this way if jesus in lord is lord now let's go back and read genesis or let's think of let's think about the book of romans in light of our in light of our nicene faith and what, what does that sound and feel like that i find a far more richer reward than the kind of bland secular approaches to the Bible, which is usually just a bunch of source criticism or, you know, peculiar reader response criticism. And it's also much better than the sort of bland and and somewhat boring and banal, purely literary grammatico exegesis as well that often pop their head. I've been reading the Bible for, it's got to be close to 50 years now. I'm, I started pretty early. I'm 54, so probably close to 50 years. I've been a pastor for 30 years now. I, I've been to seminary. I feel like a novice when it comes to scripture. I feel like I'm just scratching the surface still. And every time I go through the Bible, I feel like, oh, I know this. And yet there's depths that I haven't even begun to explore. So, you know, I guess, is this normal? And what encouragement would you give to uh, somebody who, who feels like, man, I just feel like even if I'm familiar with it, this is still foreign material to me and I've got so far to go. Oh, that's actually a good experience. I'm more concerned with people think, yeah, I've got the Bible mastered, you know, and I, I tell students when they hand you that master of divinity, I hope you do not believe them because the rest of your life should be spelled not 
mastering the Bible, but hopefully struggling to be mastered by it, uh, or at least the God who speaks in the Bible. So yeah, I think that's normal. I mean, I you know I'm I'm basically a professional Bible nerd. You know, I spend my day even more so than most pastors. You know, I, I spend my all day trolling through various things related to you know Greek, Hebrew, and historical context and the history of interpretation. And I'm always I'm always you know finding brand new things. You know, I mean, just recently I I discovered but how um, Zechariah, uh, Zechariah 6.12, you know, the, the, the Greek word uh, in, the, in the Greek translation, the, the Greek word anatole, dayspring, was used as a messianic title. And it, and it certainly appears that way in Luke's gospel in chapter, chapter 1, verse 78, where Zechariah talks about the anatole, the dayspring that's going to burst upon the world. And this is how, it, and this is how a somewhat not very well-known messianic title for the Messiah in both Judaism and in early Christianity. In fact, I had a, a PhD student, a former student of mine, David Wenkel, has even written a book on this little word, uh, the dayspring, and and how that's understood and, and interpreted amongst Jews and Christians. So, I mean, there's always stuff to learn along those lines, or you know, or, or new challenges you have to face. I mean, what do we think? Uh, what do we think about of the Bible? Uh, what do we think of immigration, you know, in light of the Bible, you know, all, all sort of stuff like that. You know, the next book I've got coming out is called Religious Freedom in a Secular Age. You know, and what do we think about this thing called secularism? Is it, is it a is it a bad thing that's been imposed or is it a good way of creating space for people of all faith and none? You know, and, and how does the Bible to speak into that? So there's, there's always topics and, and questions we can learn from, from the Bibles as we come in light of new experiences, new contexts, and for questions. I heard Ray Ortland. I think he tweeted. So I read Ray Ortland say that uh, in a lifetime, it's a good goal to master maybe a book from the Hebrew scriptures and a book from the New Testament and then kind of, you know, get to know the rest. But maybe we'll have all eternity to, to deal with the rest of it. So I, that, if Ray Ortland can say that, maybe it provides hope for the rest of us. I think that's a good idea. I think it's good of having a little like a, a passage of scripture that's something of a hobby horse. You know, I've got one, one friend who's a pastor. And he tries to read a couple of books a year on the Sermon on the Mount. So his little hobby horse is on the Sermon on the Mount. And every 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 um, four or five years, he'll do a sermon series, or at least part of it, on the Sermon on the Mount. Or if he's asked to preach somewhere, that's kind of his go-to thing. You know, I've got another friend who, who loves Isaiah 40 to 55. You know, in fact, nothing come close to memorizing the whole thing, all these various sort of, you know, songs and, and, and narratives you get in there. So I, th- I think it's good for... Um, or for anyone, but to have one part of scripture that's something of a hobby horse and over a life you, you through your reading, preaching, teaching, studying, you can develop a certain extra expertise in that particular area. I think if you have anyone in ministry having that that you know extra that little that little part of scripture that you're really fascinated about and you kind of get it's almost like a side hobby, I think is a good idea. I'm going to ask a, probably a very stupid question. You've written a whole book about how to read the Bible. And the question I want to ask you is, if you're talking to somebody who's just starting to read the Bible, maybe they've never done it before. They're, they've just got somebody's handed them a leather bound Bible and they don't know where to start. Obviously, reading your book would be a good way to begin. But what if you're just meeting them over tea or something, what would you tell them on how to get started in reading the Bible? Well, there's a whole bunch of things. I mean, you have to start off with which, which book to read. I probably wouldn't kick off with just with Genesis 1 and read my whole way through. You know, what I would probably do um, is start off with something like, you know, the Gospel of Mark. 
you know, and then I'd go to the Gospel of John and then I'd probably want to get into Acts and then maybe you know, work my way through the rest of the New Testament. Then in light of that, I'd probably go back and you know, read the Pentateuch and probably some Psalms and you know, develop a, a, re, a reading. So that's probably the order in which I, I think the order of what you read. Another thing I think does help is a good um, a good study Bible. You know, these things can become somewhat crutches and, and people rely on them. But if you get a good study Bible, because, I, I, I mean, you always be really have questions like, you know, like where the heck is Caponium? You know, what's a Pharisee? Who are the Assyrians? You know, questions like that. If you, you know, if you, if you don't have a knowledge of the ancient Near East and the Greek and Roman world, and let's be honest, you know, who does, you know, I mean, you know, apart from maybe watching some HBO movies about Rome, in which case you'd think it's just, you know, violence and one big orgy. I mean, if that's all you know about the ancient world, then you probably do need a few tips and helps. So, yeah, I mean, so having a a reading plan, having, I think, a good study Bible, I think um, would help as well. And and then reading maybe like a a simple introduction to the Bible, you know, that just kind of gives you a summary, kind of like, you know, each major book, you know. So, So when you get into a new book, you kind of know what you're getting to. Maybe something that's got like a you know authorship date setting, then maybe like a brief commentary on the whole thing. Stuff like that will be will be very helpful. And how can pastors? learn to help their people to read the Bible. Yeah, I mean, you've got to ask the find out what are the burning questions. And, you know, and this is going to change all the time. Like a few years ago, I mean, the big question that the churches I was involved with were facing were issues about, you know, what do we think about same-sex marriage? You know, that kind of a thing. Then it kind of changed into how do we deal with the sort of, you know, all the violence in the altar. Then the next big thing was kind of like, you know, um, reading the Bible in light of the Me Too movement. Probably a a big thing at the moment as well is, you know, the whole concept of gender and identity. You know, so you, you've got to kind of go to find out what the people are. And then when you're reading the Bible, have those sorts of questions in the back of your mind. The guy who, who I think does this remarkably well is Tim Keller. Tim Keller is very good at, at having a, a preaching style that is partly apologetic, by which I, I, I don't mean like every sermon is seven reasons for the, the re- resurrection or the case for angels or something. He's not doing that. But when he's reading a passage or preaching, he, he he's conscious of what are the issues that this is going to raise? How does this grate against things within our culture? So he, he, he kind of has a default setting of, of, have a, of a sort of, you know, of a cultural apologetic in his embedded in his very preaching style, which I think is very, very helpful and and very edifying and very useful. So at one level, I would say to preachers, be a bit more like Tim Keller. And and that is, you've got to know what what are the issues that your people are facing from, you know, people in high school to the people of nursing homes. What are the things that they're wrestling with? I mean, I mean, if you want to go for another topical issue, I mean, another thing at the moment is things like mask mandates, you know, I mean, that's, you know, what are the burning, what are the burning issues? Uh, and what does it mean to read scripture in light of the stuff? Now, it, that doesn't give you the license to go off all these weird hobby horses and that kind of thing. But you can you can promote a responsible reading of the Bible and a re- and you're modeling for people how to interpret and understand the Bible in light of these sort of big sort of cluster of questions that people are facing at any one time. That's great. Mike, I want to ask you a couple more personal questions. I like to ask every podcast guest these questions as we wrap up. What have you been learning recently? 
And what I've been learning, well, I've been studying about ancient ruler cults, um, like, you know, the way the Romans had a propensity to worship the emperor as a type of God, comparing that with, you know, the worship of Jesus. So I've been, I've been reading a bit, a bit about that. I'm also in terms of Jewish rulers, even, even Jewish rulers like Herod the Great could receive a type of, I mean, that they were benefactors of their people as well as kings. So they received a type of gratitude that was sort of, oh, thank God for Herod. He's so cool to us, that sort of a thing. So I'm looking at that and comparing it with the, the way the early church spoke about Christ. The other thing I'm reading, I'm reading a, a biography of Ulysses S. Grant, which I'm very much enjoying. And in the in the novel, not the novel, the biography I'm reading, Grant is just beginning his campaign against General Lee in the, in the, the Virginia campaign. Some good American history there. Yeah. That's good. And what's been encouraging you lately? Oh, boy. Well, I mean, to be honest, it's a fairly discouraging time in in both the world and in Australia. I mean, my city, Melbourne, is in its sixth lockdown, and I've got no idea when it's going to end. Uh, Sydney is facing a kind of Delta apocalypse. I think they're about to start shooting Mad Max 4 soon or something like that in, in, in life. What's encouraging me is it's good seeing my students and my colleagues persevering. I, I have the benefit of being on study leave at the moment, but it's very encouraging just seeing my colleagues and students kind of just getting on with things and getting the job done and continuing the ministry and the work of Ridley College. It's good. I really appreciate your ministry. The The book, the most recent book you've written is Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew About the Bible. It's a book that I wish I could put in everybody's hands, certainly in the church and uh, pastors all the way down to the pew. And I'm really grateful for it. Grateful for your wider ministry as well. You're, it seems like you're quite active in publishing and I've benefited from uh, many of your work. So thank you. Where can people find out more? About you can follow me at mbird12 or you can also follow me at michaelfbird.com substack.com where I kind of have like a, a few blog posts or newsletter stuff that I send out three or four times a week. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today and uh, thank you for this book. Thank you, Daryl, for having me and thank you to your listeners for joining us.